It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. It's time to make the dough rise. I'm Walter Storholt alongside Brian Doe, certified financial planner at Living Worth Wealth Advisors, serving the Lake Country and beyond with an office in Greensboro, Georgia. You can find us online at livingworth.com. Brian, it is great to be with you today, sir. How are you? Yeah, good to be here. A little bit lighter in the wallet, though, I'm afraid. Uh-oh. Why, why is that? I had to part with some dough. Part with some dough. So we, we weren't making the dough rise. We were, we, were, we were deflating a little bit of the dough. Yeah, I, I finally had a breakdown. <laughs> My um, 2004 Toyota Land Cruiser, it hit 271,000 miles on it. And so it didn't owe me a lot. But the brakes have gone out for the second time, and I figure, eh, maybe I'll play it safe and upgrade. So I made a huge upgrade. I bought a 2010 Lexus GX with, it's like new, it only has 107,000 miles on it. So I'm back in business and feel like I've gotten a major upgrade in my life. Nice. What, what does the, the Lexus have now that uh, I love, by the way, that brand new for you is a 2010. Uh, that that's great. Yeah. Uh, what does the Lexus have that the old Land Cruiser didn't? Well, nothing. I would much rather have the old Land Cruiser. It, it's superior in every regard. But my in-laws were looking to upgrade themselves, and they had a perfectly cared for Lexus that had been garaged and you know driven back and forth to church and all that kind of stuff is all all they did with it. So. For $15,000, I figured it wasn't uh, not a whole lot that could go wrong with that decision. Pretty good deal. Absolutely. I guess 2010, they weren't making uh, the same kind of technology changes that, that we're now seeing in some of the newer cars the last three or four years where you're getting some really cool technology integration. That kind Yes, of thing. So I've, I've had to upgrade from my cassette player. <laughs> to now I have a DVD player. A, D- a DVD? <laughs> or, or do you mean C- CD player? CD player, yeah. I was going to say, you're watching DVDs while you're driving. I don't, that doesn't sound legal. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I listen to everything on my AirPods nice. with my, from my phone. So the, I will never the technology forget. in the car doesn't really matter. I will never forget going with my dad when he bought uh, a truck. Uh, I was older, probably a teenager by, at that point, um, on my way out of the house probably within a year or two, and he had to upgrade to a new truck. And I'll never forget at the dealership him haggling for them to take out the CD player and put in a cassette player. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. he had all upgrades. of his favorite tapes on cassette. <laughs> and he was like, it's gonna, it would take me forever to put them on CD. And then, you know, I don't like it because you, you bounce between tracks. I like having to fast forward. I, I know just how long I need to fast forward to get to my favorite spots. So he was all about the cassette player. He actually had them take out the CD player and put in the cassette player. That's was, funny. It was my, my kids would have no idea what you're talking about, about fast-forwarding and rewinding. Yeah, well, what is, what that. is that? Yeah, yeah we, we just do Spotify, and you've literally got the entire universe of every song ever yep. you know, at your fingertips. It's crazy. It's pretty wild. Well, I hope you enjoy the new ride. Congrats on the, uh, the upgrade, and I'm sure it will treat you well, and you'll, you'll get it well above 200K before, before we know it. Oh, yeah, I'm feeling sporty. <laughs> Very good. We've got a great show today. It's going to be, I think, a good one, educational and also kind of interesting, especially with some of the things that have happened in the news, which we'll get into as we go through the show today. But we're going to talk about alternative investments and hedge funds. I feel like these are buzzwords that we've probably all heard of before, Brian, but I don't know how many people have really taken a lot of stock into really learning what hedge funds are all about and what really makes up an alternative investment. But I thought this would be good to bring up on today's show with you and tap into your expertise on it all, because I'm sure some of your clients have asked questions about these things before. 
Yeah, hedge funds are in alternative investments. I, I don't want to claim to be an expert on them because generally speaking, I tend to avoid them. I think they're sexy, exotic. They're they're great cocktail, you know, talk if you want to flex on your friends about, you know, some cool thing that you're doing. But for the most part, you know, they I mean they they get a lot of press and they get a lot of sales effort because, you know, they're they're touted as an additional element of diversification and diversification is good. All right. So that's, that, that all makes sense. Then it also sounds like you have access to something special. You know, there's this manager, they've got special insights, special knowledge, connections, and presumably you're getting access to something that you can't ordinarily get from any ordinary investment. And so you've got to go to this alternative or uh, hedge fund structure. And then, of course, then that takes us to the name hedge fund. And well, hedge sounds like a good thing because you know, if you're if you're hedging your bets or hedging against a loss or hedging something, well, that would be a protection. That would be something that you would uh, certainly want and, and, and sounds good. And then, um, you know, again, it's just it, it sounds cool to say that you've got uh, certain hedge funds or XYZ strategy. And it just it makes you sound extra smart. So if, if you can't tell right off the bat, I'm a little bit cynical about these uh, hedge funds and, and alternatives. But but they 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 do come in a lot of different flavors. So I don't I don't necessarily want to categorically rule them out. But in the 20 years, 21 years now that I've been doing this, I have had a lot of hedge funds and alternatives pitched to me. Uh, presented by you know representatives, I've had people who have brought in hedge funds that they've bought other places, and uh, sometimes it, it it took some time to you know figure out what they were and and work out of them. And and they're not all bad. Some of them have definitely done well and and can enhance and and add to your returns. But really, at the end of the day, I'm I, I, I'm not a big user of hedge funds and alternatives. So not something that normally sparks your interest, but uh, still important to understand how they impact the investment world, because that's how I've sort of at least understood and, and read in particular hedge funds is we kind of pay attention to them because they're such big move makers that they, they need to be at least on the radar. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt to look at them and know and understand. Uh, they get a lot of press from... Well, big institutional Wall Street investors, some of the talking heads on uh, CNBC and, and the like are, are hedge fund managers or private equity managers, uh, which would be a, a type of alternative investment. And then the one that was getting a lot of press for a number of years were university endowments. And uh, presumably the investment team at Harvard or you know heck Emory up in Atlanta has got you know billions of dollars in in uh, endowment funds and so they can do a lot of investments and investment strategies with a very long term time horizon they can invest in uh, illiquid things that that may have a, a long term return and it's because they're working with billions of dollars and they have an entire staff of uh, you know quants and MBAs and math gurus who can, can sit around and, and dissect different investment strategies to figure out what what might work. And they had a great run for a number of years. And so everybody wanted to be like Harvard and everybody wanted to be like Emory. And then some of the investments that they made didn't do as well. And so for a number of years, a lot of those same endowments uh, and foundations underperformed the market. So it, it's one of those 
recency bias. Yeah, so when they're doing well, everybody's captivated and wants a part of the action. And then when they aren't doing well, suddenly they just disappear off the, the news feed and, and nobody really thinks about them for a while. That's a great point. Yeah, I feel like I hadn't heard a lot of hedge fund talk until recently. And uh, yeah, it kind of comes in waves. That's a good, a good observation, as that definitely seems to be the case. Is there somebody in particular who hedge funds are a good fit for, even though you don't necessarily dabble in them too much? Well, yeah. So let me, let me just give you a little bit of background of, about what a hedge fund or, or an al- true alternative investment really is. Sure. And it's, it's typically a private structure. And unlike highly regulated mutual funds and exchange-traded funds and even equities that have a lot of oversight by the Securities and Exchange Commissions, hedge funds are a structure where it's a little more wild west. You can, you can do some things that you couldn't necessarily do in a regular 1940s act mutual fund or in an exchange-traded fund that we can buy and sell on a daily basis. Well, to get that type of flexibility, you have to up the standards of who's allowed in. And so oftentimes these are restricted to what they call an accredited investor. And it usually has a income or net worth threshold. So it maybe you have to make at least $250,000 a year or, or $300,000 a year, or you have at least a million dollars in assets. So that, that's one hurdle to potentially uh, getting in. And uh, the other hurdle then becomes they may have very high minimums. You, know, you may have to come to them with at least a million dollars to even get in. And uh, you know, for the average investor, that, that may be a hurdle you know, too high to, to actually get into. But once, once you overcome those hurdles, now the investment manager can, they, they can do long positions. They can buy and hold things. They can short or sell short uh, positions and, and, and bet that something's going to go down in price. They could do options, futures contracts. Uh, you could get into commodities, currencies, real estate. Uh, I've even seen some that will do film financing. You know, so these, these Hollywood producers are looking for money to, you know, for the next blockbuster film. These hedge funds can actually go see a new script or film and then collect a, a you know, share of the box office revenues. And th- there's also some that will do a lot of lending. And th- these could be small private loans. These could be big you know, business loans, uh, you know, diff- different types of financing. But really, at the end of the day, these things are often very illiquid. And illiquid just means if you want your money out, you may or may not be able to get it out when you want it. The things that they've invested in may have to be held to maturity or until it's a good time to sell. And so you you give up that daily or intraday liquidity that you're used to with stocks, you know, even bonds, exchange-traded funds and the like. And if the fund has a liquidity schedule, it may be once a month, it may be once a quarter, it may be once a year. And you have to let them know well in advance, hey, I plan to sell my shares. So if you have new money coming in or if you are liquidating certain assets in the fund, it's much harder for them to generate the funds to pay you out your share. So when you need the money most, you may not be able to actually get it which goes back to why you either need a high income or a high net worth to get into these things in the first place. 
So if, if those are the qualifications, I guess it's it's tough for the everyday person to really get involved here and may not even make sense for most people. Well, I always I like to look at, uh, you know, who are who are hedge funds actually good for? And that's the thing. Like I said, they're they sound appealing. They sound exotic. But one thing that you have to look at is what the fee structure is of a hedge fund. And you'll hear two and 20, two and 20. That, that's standard industry uh, pricing for a hedge fund. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means they're charging 2% of the assets that they're managing as their base fee. Well, that's double what I charge at the highest level. So they're all right out of the gate. They're twice as expensive as a you know, well-run portfolio with good financial planning advice and you know, big picture tax planning, all, all the things that I do. They're charging double for for their investment strategy. And then if they outperform, they get 20% of the profits. That's insanely expensive. So yeah, I, don't, the, I, don't, I don't like that deal. <laughs> well, and, it, and, and people you know, often don't realize that because even the people that I talk to who do have some money in hedge funds, oh yeah, it was up you know, 30 something percent last year, which you know, a good growth portfolio, if you bought the large cap growth index last year, you were up 38%. Well, if your hedge fund was up 38%, well, they're going to take 2% off for their fee and, and then 20% of, of some gains, maybe they set the index as the S&P 500, which was up 16%. And so now they get 20% of the gains above the benchmark. And so what turned out to be a great return, suddenly things erode and, and it isn't quite the, the spectacular return. So I always compare it to class action lawsuits. I get a lot of clients that get these letters in the mail and, oh, you know, XYZ companies being sued for misrepresenting earnings or misrepresenting something. And they, they'll send in a, you know, about a hundred page prospectus and say, is this worth doing? Well, you get about, about the second or third page and you find out that for each share of XYZ stock, if this lawsuit settles satisfactorily, you'll get about eight cents a share. Well, if they had 100 or 200 shares, I said, is it worth filling out all this paperwork, submitting all of this stuff for 8 or $16? Oh, well, no. Okay. They, they, they don't have any interest in, in the amount of effort that would go into proving that you own the shares at a certain date and all that stuff. So I said, class action lawsuits are great for the lawyers. They're the ones that collect the big fees. They're going to get 40% of what whatever they win. And then, then the thousands or millions of shareholders get to split up little bits and pieces each. Well, same with a hedge fund. The hedge fund manager is eating at the trough first with these outsized fees and a share of the gains. And so um, call me a cynic again, if you like, but I, I think hedge funds are great for hedge fund managers. I think it makes uh, makes a lot of sense. And that's a good analogy to the class action. I, I always remember getting those and thinking, oh, who goes through all this trouble? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. they make it sound like you're going to, I mean, this is a great opportunity and justice will be served. And, you know, we're going to be divvying up this incredibly large amount of money, but buried in the fine print is how many people that's going to get split between and what you're going to actually end up with. So yeah, yeah. if you were running a big mutual fund and you had millions of shares and, and you, you recoup enough to, to make it a 
you know, significant enough dollar amount, that's fine. But yeah, for, for individual investors, not so much. And, and, and the same with the hedge funds, you know, like I said, if you have to have a million dollars or $10 million to, to get in, your average investor is not going to have access. So the industry has created through brokerage firms, uh, even through some ETFs, exposures to hedge funds where you can get in for much smaller dollar amounts. But that reminds me of the uh, Oscar Wilde quote. He says, I won't belong to a club that accepts me as a member. So if, if you're <laughs> eligible to get in and you're not a billionaire, you're not a hundred millionaire, yeah, you might want to question whether or not you actually belong there or not. That's an interesting way to look at it, for sure. Uh, you mentioned earlier that we tend to hear about hedge funds in waves. You know, they kind of pop up and we don't hear about them for a while. I feel like we heard a lot about them in the 2008-2009 time frame, then maybe hadn't heard about them in quite some time until just a, about a week ago when all the GameStop uh, stock craziness sure. was going on. But what have been some maybe good examples of how hedge funds have made themselves known in the universe for good or for bad over the last couple of decades? Yeah, well, and, and that's the reality of these hedge funds is what worked today to get them their spectacular returns oftentimes is not repeatable, right? So one story that I like to focus on is, is uh, if you, have you ever seen the movie The Big Short? Many times. Okay. Great movie. It's a, it's a complex movie. You have to really understand derivatives, collateralized debt obligations, how mortgage-backed uh, securities are structured and all that kind of stuff. But one of the characters in that movie was a hedge fund manager. And he, he'd done well and was real, he was a real brainy guy that would play the rock music real loud in his office. and A very just, non-conventional hedge fund manager. Yeah, yeah. So if you can get into you know, his, that would be great. But he detected that there was a problem headed our way with the mortgage-backed securities. And so he was doing the analysis on like late payments and defaults. And he said, oh, no, this, this, something's really bad here. And so he went and bought credit default swaps, which are basically bets that mortgages are going to go bad. And, and he well, had to basically like create them, right? Like the, the, the product didn't necessarily exist, at least in the movie. They sort of entailed that he had, they were like, he was like, can you make these for me? Make this investment, create yeah, it. They, they didn't exist in the in the size and quantity and, and form that he wanted. Yeah. So he basically had to go to, go to Goldman Sachs and said, build these for me. And in a place like Goldman Sachs can do that. But um, he then had to pay the insurance premiums on these collateralized debt obligations for months or years until these loans actually went bad. Well, his investors started saying, hey, you know, what, what, what's going on with this, this investment that you've made? We're, we're paying all these premiums to bet that these mortgages, American mortgages, you know, presumably high credit quality backed by Fannie and, and Freddie and the, the, the like, but um, he kept paying them because he was convinced that they would go wrong. Well, because Goldman Sachs had created these, they were sort of cooking the books on what their value was. And so as the credit quality of those securities was declining, Goldman Sachs realized they had a problem. And so they had to uh, basically unwind their huge exposure to the bets that this guy had made. But all the while, he had to keep paying the premiums, paying and, and millions and millions of dollars every month that he was paying. And his investors started saying, uh, yeah, we want out. Yeah, this isn't what we signed up for. 
uh, we're not so sure about this. Okay. And he had to freeze his fund from liquidations. Everybody threatened to sue him. He was getting nasty emails. It, it was just a tense you know, time for him and, and, and the investors that were in that strategy. And now ultimately, those securities you know, did default and he made you know, an absolute killing on the, on the thing. But in, in the giant checks, he ended up closing the fund and he mailed everybody their giant uh, you know, profit checks. But he, he could he just he literally got out of the business because it was such a hairy ride that people that got into it, you know, they weren't they didn't really have the 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 stomach or the time frame to to, to handle such an investment. And and if he had gotten it wrong, it, it could have been you know truly disastrous. Definitely a great great film and uh, lots to like about that one uh, from an educational standpoint. Also very entertaining. Definitely check it out if you still haven't seen it. The Big Short. You'll learn a lot about. Maybe, sort of maybe the, sometime we could we should do a director's cut uh, or commentary cut. Oh, of, that'd be fun. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll just pa- we'll hit. When I watch that movie with anybody, I'm always pausing and I'm like, all right, now let me tell you what's going on here. Right. They're right. like, I'm I'm glad I'm watching this with you. Otherwise, You're that would, guy. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's right. Now we heard a lot about hedge funds last week, so they yes. made they made it back into the news. GameStop uh, came into the news. Hedge funds were in Blackberry. the news. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what all happened with that? And I, I realize it's still evolving as we record today's show. Um, but but most of the most of the newsy notes happened last week. Yeah, all, all the action happened last. Well, it, I, I would say it's continuing this week as everybody's trying to sort out exactly what is going on, but. Uh, all these hedge funds had shorted GameStop, which was a video game retailer at, at the mall. If, if if you haven't paid any attention to the to the drama going on Wall, on Wall Street, but they had effectively shorted a hundred and I think one hundred and forty percent or one hundred and thirty eight percent of the company's actual value. So right off the bat, I mean, what the question is is should you be able to sell one hundred and forty percent of something in the first place? Right. I mean, you can't sell 140% of your house. If I sell my Land Cruiser, I can't sell 140% of it. it <laughs> right, you, there's exactly. just one. And so all these guys on uh, Reddit, uh, you know, which is the, the chat and, and bulletin board site, they all teamed up and said, hey, you know, we, all these hedge fund managers have this massive short position in GameStop. And I don't know if they believed in the company or if they just believed that if we start buying shares and drive that price up, it's going to cause problems for the people who shorted it. And, and just real quick, I'm sure everybody's heard a zillion examples of, of or analogies trying to explain short selling. I've got an easy way to describe it. In investing, you want to buy low, sell high. It's that easy, right? You with me so far? I, I can track. Yep. Okay. All short selling is, is it does that in reverse. You sell high with the hopes that in the future you can buy low and replace the shares that you've sold. That's that's about as simple as as you can explain it. And so these hedge funds had all these short positions. They had sold. And then they're hoping that the stock now goes to zero or close to zero. And then they get to pocket the the gain or or buy those shares back at zero and, and and make a, a profit. So, so if a stock is at ten, you're going to say, "Okay, give me give me 10, 10 shares of that stock at ten. I'm going to borrow that and sell it right away." Yeah, I'm just going to turn around and sell it, and then and when then, it gets to a dollar, I'm going to buy them back, and I'm going to give you your shares back. 
and you then make the the nine dollar profit basically correct correct okay. so, so the most the most that you can make in a short position would be one hundred percent right so okay. if i if I shorted a thousand dollars worth of game stock and the stock went to zero, I make a thousand dollars but if I shorted it a thousand dollars, however many shares that would be, and it goes to two thousand five thousand ten thousand. 50,000, my loss is unlimited. That stock price can keep going up, presumably for fundamental reasons. But in the case of GameStop, it was because all these kids got together on Reddit and they went to their Robinhood accounts and they're, you know, maybe TD Ameritrade or wherever they were buying and, and selling stocks. And they just started buying GameStop shares. And so then the price went up and they weren't selling, they were holding them and they got. I don't know, there's millions of people on this, this one chat room in, in Reddit. And they all started buying a few shares and the price kept going up. Well, if you're in a short position that has now you know, gone up from, uh, in our, let's say went from 1,000 to, to 10,000, now you're losing $9,000. You're losing 900% of your investment. You might want to get out of that position. And so what you have to do to get out of that position is go buy these now higher priced shares to satisfy the short position that you had established, which now does what? That creates more buyers, which supply and demand that pushes the price up. And it's called a short squeeze. When all these short sellers need to get out of their position, they have to go in and buy the shares that they've shorted to make good on their short bet. And so then all the Redditors and then the, you know, the, it hits the news and, and everybody wants to jump in, of course, late in the game until it gets into this, this frenzied price. And the hedge funds have lost billions of dollars on, on this one bet, all because a bunch of 25-year-olds got, got together online and, and decided to you know, stick it to them, basically. And Honestly, Walter, I, I love to see it because it is a democratization of access to the markets. You know, if you if you believe in free markets, if you believe in capitalism, it, it can be a good and bad uh, to any side of it. But the idea that these big established Wall Street hedge fund elites could just short a stock into oblivion, again, by selling more than what the company was worth in the first place. You know, it, it just seems very cronyish, insider-ish, and uh, you know, whether there was anything illegal about it or, or, or not, it doesn't really matter. The fact is, is this is now a new risk to hedge funds that a bunch of kids are going to get together online and drive your stock price up on your short positions and potentially cause you billions of dollars uh, of losses. So this this kind of populist movement that's occurring in, on Wall Street. I think it's great to see that that kind of thing can actually serve as a check or a balance to, you know, some of the excesses and cronyism that that, that so many people are are talking about. It can, it can cut both ways. I know that um, we could probably spend a whole show on then what happened after that, where things started to get shut down and regulated, and it, the, that, that's a, probably a whole other debate and, and introspective for another time. But that's uh, that's going to yeah, be and, where this goes the, from the, here, right? You you can you can read the case study on it later. But just uh, interesting point of note: Janet Yellen probably received what was it eight hundred 
you know, now Treasury Secretary, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, probably received about $800,000 in speaking fees from the hedge fund that was involved in helping try to shut down and, and block out the, the small investors. So yeah, it, it, that, you're right. We could do a whole other podcast on it. We probably won't, but there will be plenty of commentary out there if you want to know more about it. Yeah, if you're interested in it, definitely follow. There'll be more news to come out of that. Any other good examples of hedge funds you would like to bring to light? Yeah, I, I, this is going to bring it back to what I talk about every day, and that's just keeping it simple and sticking to the basics. So if you go back to 2008, Warren Buffett was, he was kind of always dogging on, you know, hedge funds and day traders and, and the like, because, you know, he's forever the value investor, buy and hold good companies forever. And, and even and though just, he's big enough to be his own hedge fund, essentially, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, different yeah. mission, right? Right, right. But, but the fact that Berkshire Hathaway trades like a stock, you know, with daily liquidity and all that stuff, you can get in and out of it. But yeah, yeah, it very much could be a hedge fund. Well, he made a bet with another hedge fund manager that over a 10-year time period, he bet that hedge funds on average could not outperform the S&P 500. Or, or maybe it was a, a, a specific hedge fund. I, I forget the exact details. But they bet a million dollars that over a decade, the hedge fund couldn't beat the S&P 500. And again, now think about it, 2008, what happened the next year? The market dropped about 50%. So right out of the gate, Warren Buffett was down you know, about 50% on his S&P 500 bet. But he was looking at it for the 10-year time frame. Well, at that time, because of all the market volatility, the subprime crisis, some of these hedge funds actually did really well during that time period. So, so again, right off the bat, the hedge funds were ahead. Warren Buffett with his S&P 500 index was behind. But they had taken uh, the money that they were betting, basically, and had put it into to treasury bills. And with the idea that at maturity, they would be worth a million dollars. And uh, to be fair, the, uh, the, the money was going to go to charity, right? So whoever won this bet, Warren Buffett didn't need a million dollars. The hedge fund manager didn't need a million dollars. They were just doing it to, you know, for sport and to uh, make a point and to help charity. Well, the, over that same initial few years, treasuries did poorly too. And so the bond investment that they had made uh, was not performing. And so they actually took the proceeds out of the treasuries and put it into Berkshire Hathaway, where it then proceeded to grow to $2.2 million. And Warren Buffett ended up being correct. The S&P 500 then proceeded to outperform, you know, over the next eight years or so, uh, these hedge fund managers who, who fell out of favor and, and a lot of their exotic strategies and their high uh, expense ratios ate into their returns. And so at the end of the day, Warren Buffett was right. And uh, let, me, let me just read his quote here. He says, making money on the stock market, quote, does not require great intelligence, a degree in economics, or familiarity with Wall Street jargon. He said, what investors need instead is an ability to both disregard mob fears or enthusiasms and to focus on a few simple fundamentals. Stick with big, easy decisions and SU activity. That's classic Warren Buffett right there. And what was that last part? Uh, SU activity? Yeah, SU activity. Okay. So, so gotcha. turnover, uh, 
frequent yes. trading, the buying gotcha. and selling, getting in and out. That tends to trying to time, trying to time the market. You got to get, you know, you got to get the buy decision right. You got to get the sell decision right. You could get hit with taxes. You could take, get hit with transaction fees. Although that's less of a problem these days. But yeah, just just keep it boring. Call me old fashioned, but that's uh, that's that's basically. The, the approach to take. So whether we want to participate in a hedge fund, if we have the capability or act like one on our own, the reality is it doesn't necessarily usually match up with uh, a great plan or, uh, you know, route to get you to and through retirement, which is what you're typically dealing with people and helping them accomplish. Yeah. Simple blocking and tackling. If, if you, if you want to speculate or, you know, try a hedge fund, that that has a very aggressive mandate or expecting outsized returns. Do it with money that you know you don't need to maintain your lifestyle. In full disclosure, in in all the years that I've been doing this, there is one one alternative lending or alternative investment strategy that I do use, and it has to do more with private loans, very small loans, hundred thousand and under, uh, through a lot of these online banks. And so a firm got together and they went and bought up, you know, just blocks and blocks of, uh, of these small loans that uh, they earn a slight premium uh, on uh, compared to a bank loan because after the subprime crisis, banks quit making these small loans. It just wasn't profitable. So a lot of business owners and individuals were going to their credit cards to get ten or $20,000. And so the, these online banks came in and, and said, well, we can compete with... 15, 16, 18, you know, 20% interest rates will lend money to the best borrowers, the best credit rated borrowers who are using credit card debt. And instead of charging them 18%, we'll charge 13% or 12% or you give, give them something competitive. And, and they tend to be, you know, one to five year loans. And they, that is actually a very conservative strategy. It's an alternative to bonds. But we as a firm had to come to them with a minimum of $15 million. Well, unfortunately, Main Street, the, the firm that I'm a member of, has over a billion dollars with all of the assets that uh, the, the advisors manage. And so collectively, we were able to you know, get access to this fund that has actually been a very good alternative to fixed income. It's not trying to do anything weird or exotic or, you know, based on derivatives or leverage. It's, it's just simply a straightforward alternative lending platform. And uh, I use it in a very small uh, allocation for clients. So I'm not saying that categorically everything out there, hedge and alternative is bad, but I have looked at a lot of them and I've only ever used one of them. So they, they're, they're the shiny object that we have to be very careful of chasing after. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Well, very cool. I think that's a nice, uh, good breakdown and introduction into hedge funds and some alternative investments and some things to think about and food for thought if you've heard a lot about them in the news lately. A little bit more detail and background on how they work, why they exist, who's typically investing in them. Hopefully that's helpful to you. If you have any questions for Brian, we always invite you to reach out to us. You can call 706-451-9800. If you ever have a question for Brian and want to get in touch that way, that's 706-451-9800. An even better action item for you, though, would be to go to retirementrescue.net. You can download your own free copy of the 401k trap. Now, Brian, you don't talk a ton about hedge funds in there, today's particular topic, but you do talk about great financial planning 
techniques and strategies and getting back to those basics and simplicity uh, simplicity approach to getting to and through retirement. Yeah, just getting the most of the bottom line on an after-tax basis. And if that happens to involve a hedge fund, fantastic, but more than likely it doesn't. So if you want to learn more about the the tax you know trap that you may be exposed to in your 401k or 403b or other type of retirement plans, uh, that's covered in there, plus lots of other great material as well. So pick it up, uh, download your free copy of the 401k trap. We have it for you at retirementrescue.net for free. If you've got an IRA, 401k, 403b, we'll also throw in SCP or uh, even a 457 plan. This is the guide for you. So it's the 401k trap, retirementrescue.net, your place to go. Well, Brian, thanks for the breakdown. Enjoy the new uh, the new car. Break it in, and uh, we'll I'll talk to you again on the next style. episode. Yeah, yep, riding in for style. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, it'll, it, it'll, it feels like a brand new car after going from a 270,000 mile window to 100, huh? It really does, actually. <laughs> it truly does. Very cool. Well, for Brian Doe, I'm Walter Storholt. Thanks for taking the time out to join us. We'll talk to you next time on Make the Dough Rise. Thanks, Walter. Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors, with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website. Or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.